Good morning, church. Our college campuses need our prayers. I lift you to join me now as we lift up our college campuses around us and, uh, and pray for an awakening in our own Hudson Valley and the Dutchess County. So let's go to the Lord for Lord Jesus. We, we do lift up our college campuses. We think of uh, Dutchess Community College. God, we lift up Vassar College, Marist College, the Culinary Institute. We lift those up to you, Lord. Bard, we lift up to you. And there's others, so many more. And God, we pray for your spirit to move in those campuses, that there be an awakening, that scales would fall from eyes, and that the eyes of hearts would be open to see the beauty of Jesus Christ and the gospel. God, we pray for believers on those campuses, that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them, that you would embolden them to share the greatest message this world has ever heard, and to share that with confidence with their classmates, with their professors. Father, we pray for professors, believing professors. Give them courage to honor you before the administration uh, in their in whatever positions they're serving in. Father, we pray that uh, you would cut through just the fog of intellectualism uh, that often has a way of puffing up and may, perhaps leading to uh, looking down on, on the Bible and on the message of Christianity as, as something primitive. Father, it is not, and we know that. And God, we pray that you would cut through that that arrogance and that pride and that hearts would be open to the gospel. Father, we pray for ministries on those campuses that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them, that you would embolden them to, to minister with faithfulness. And God, we, we believe and we pray uh, not just that the, the, the generation that are on our campuses currently are the church of tomorrow, but God, we, we, we plead that they would be the church of today as well. Father, we, we look around here even and we notice uh, a demographic that is strikingly missing. And what a blessing that would be to the body of Christ to have that demographic represented here uh, as indeed the gospel is for all people, all walks of life, all ethnicities, all cultures, all languages, all age groups. And Father, we pray that our church would be effective in, in reaching that demographic as well, as, as well as all others. God, we love you and we plead for this. We pray that you would open up uh, a huge, massive door for the gospel on campuses in our area and across the nation, that your name would be lifted high all across our nation and our, our colleges and universities. To your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's this Thursday. Uh, keep, keep those colleges in, in prayer. I think they're in the prayer sheet this week as well. Moving right along in the Gospel of John. Last week, we saw Jesus at a wedding. One of my points was that Jesus calls us not to just follow a bunch of rules. He doesn't call us to follow rules. He calls us to a feast. He calls us to a party. Jesus turned about 150 gallons of water into the highest quality wine to show that he's the ultimate provider. 
And He will provide with His very blood the forgiveness that we all need. But remember that this wedding and all weddings, for that matter, are a shadow. They're just a shadow. They're a shadow of the most glorious wedding, the most glorious party there will ever be when Jesus returns to be with his people, the church. Remember the angel telling John in Revelation 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Last week I said that Jesus is not the poster boy for anti-fun rule-keeping. He's not a killjoy. But now we come to our passage today and we're going to see Jesus getting angry and causing a scene. And he's, he's going to be driving out animals and people from the temple complex area. He's going to be overturning tables. So we have these, these two stories juxtaposed to one another. And in one, we have Jesus, the ultimate party planner, the ultimate party giver. And in the other, we have seemingly the ultimate party pooper. Right next to each other, in our Bibles. Right juxtaposed to one another. And, and there's evidence here to suggest that uh, this story uh, was put here on purpose by John in, in the Synoptic Gospels. This story occurs uh, at the end of Jesus' ministry. And here, John has moved it around. He's put it at the beginning. And I think there's something that we need to pay attention to here that John wants us to know uh, by putting these two stories right next to one another. And if that troubles you that John might move some of that stuff around, it's okay, because the gospel writers don't always present their material. They don't always arrange the material chronologically, but sometimes they arrange it topically or thematically. And so here we see an example of this in John's gospel. What's going on here? How are we to make sense of these two very different pictures of Jesus? The party planner and the party pooper. May we Many today claim to love Jesus, but there are, there are some stories in the Gospels that we come to when Jesus does something or says something uncomfortable. And this is, this is the result for some. Some will choose to just ignore those parts. Let's just brush that over. We'll you know, look that over. Uh, we'll ignore that. Some go so far as to say that these stories are just later editions. They were added in later, and they're not authentic to the original writing. So they, they write those parts off as, as not being the real Jesus. Uh, and for others, this can create a, a crisis of faith. But as we look at this together, I hope to show you that Jesus, the party maker, and Jesus, the seeming party pooper, are one in the same. And that Jesus has in mind here a singular goal, whether he's filling tables with wine or turning them over. He has the same goal in mind. So let's dig into the text. We're going to see what's going on here. Grab your Bibles. Turn with me to John chapter 2. We'll start in verse 13 and read through to 25. If you don't have a Bible, please use one of our pew Bibles. You'll find this on page 1054 in one of the Pew Bibles. 
If you don't own a Bible, it's our gift to you today. Take this Bible home with you. And once you're there, please stand with me if you're able, out of reverence and respect for God's Word, and follow along with me as I read. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem, At the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you that you love the world so much to give him to us, that we may find forgiveness of our sins. We thank you for the ministry of Jesus, the living word, the word made flesh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit by which we can look at your word with eyes that are open and hearts that are open. And we pray now that your spirit would be our teacher during these moments. May we hear and may we not just be hearers of your word, but doers. May your word change us. May we live differently today because of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So how is is Jesus the table setter and Jesus the table turner at the same time with a singular mission? We're going to unpack this by looking at three aspects of this text in turn, and they're, they're these, the problem, the solution, and the authority. The problem, the solution, and the authority. So first, the problem. There's been a variety of uh, of ways that people or reasons that people have given for what the money changers and the animal merchants were doing in the temple. Some claim they were extorting the people by jacking up the prices, and, and this is what Jesus saw as, as so deplorable. 
or worse, that they were racially discriminating by only jacking up the prices on for non-Jews. And that may have been going on, but that's not what John is telling us here. That's not what John wants us to pay attention to. But Jesus' criticism, it wasn't that they were guilty of underhanded business practices, but that they were there at all. But that they were there at all. He says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. This is what he's getting after. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, the service that these merchants were providing was a good one. It wasn't feasible for many who were traveling from great distances to bring an animal with them to make a sacrifice. And so they would bring money with them and buy the animal when they arrived in Jerusalem. And similarly, the, the money changers, uh, these people, again, coming from all over, uh, had foreign currency, and they needed a way to, to uh, convert that currency into the acceptable currency uh, for the temple tax that was to be given. And so they were providing a service here. But at one time, this all took place outside of the temple, on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, and all this business would happen there, and then people would go to the temple. But now it's, it's in the temple complex, complex itself, likely in the outer court. The Greek word used here for trade is emporion, where we get our word emporium. Jesus is describing a busy market going on inside the temple complex. The outer court was called the court of the Gentiles because this is where God-fearing non-Jews would come and worship and pray to the God of Israel. In Mark's gospel, he includes something else that Jesus says here. He says, is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And there's this quote from Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7, where the inclusion of foreigners in God's family is described. Listen to it. It's really beautiful. He says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it he holds fast and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, for all peoples. You see, the the temple complex, even the most outer court, was to be a place for prayer, a place for worship, a place for reflecting on the sacrifices that are being given and being made to think about what you're doing. It was to be a solemn place of worship. But the hustle and bustle of a marketplace no doubt made this very difficult, if not impossible. Listen to how commentator D.A. Carson describes the scene. Instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, 
holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. Now, the problem with this environment is that there's little to no thought being given to the sacrifice that they're offering. This, I think, is what gets Jesus riled up. Imagine, you only need to buy your animal and then take a few steps and give it to the priest who slaughters it right there on the spot and and offers the sacrifice, and then you move on your way and you've done your duty and you can go about the rest of your day. No time to stop. Too noisy to really reflect and to pray. And the temple was to be the place where God would meet with man. Because of all the distractions, they're they're missing him altogether. In that environment, they were missing the whole point of everything that was being done there. And this is what Jesus is after. When someone offered a sacrifice, the meaning of that sacrifice should have been on their hearts and on their minds, but it wasn't. When that animal was laid down and slain, they should have been thinking and meditating on this. The fact that that animal should have been me. That I rebelled against God and that I was guilty, not that animal. It died so that I could live. But was this happening? No, it was not happening. And this is what disturbed Jesus. Worship had become mechanical. It had become rote. There was no heart in it. It was disengaged. It was routine. It was dead, fake religion. And if there's one thing that Jesus hates, it's fake religion. As you read the Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus reserves his strongest rebukes for Pharisees, for religious leaders, not for prostitutes or drunkards. His strongest words were always reserved for those who were hypocrites, those who were going through the motions. Now hear this, just like the wedding last week was a shadow of what is to come, so too these sacrifices were a shadow pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world when he laid down his life for all of us. And if they were missing the point of these sacrifices, they would miss the point of his sacrifice too. This is why dead, fake religion is so dangerous. Because it causes us to miss Jesus. And worse, it turns others off from knowing the real Jesus. Because they see that and they think, I don't want that. If that's what Christianity is about, no thank you. Church, this is a warning to us. This is a warning to us. What noise is in your life that keeps you from contemplating Jesus? And what he's done for you, for for having that on your mind, for meditating on on the reality and the truths of the gospel. For some of you, it could be, I'm just thinking about our, our day and age, right? For some of you, the noise might look like you're watching too much news. I know some people who watch a lot of news, left or right. And, and, I, and I think this is, is it's becoming toxic 
Because what, what happens is that it causes us, it kind of seduces us into vilifying others. And it leads us to conclude that our world's biggest problems are out there. It's those people. That's, those are our world's biggest problems. If only those people could get their act right, if they could get in line, if they could change, then our world would be a better place. Does that sound familiar to you? There's a story Jesus told about a man who would go to the, the temple and say, God, thank you that I'm not like that person. Thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. And I think that over time, as we just consume too much news, it conditions our hearts and our souls to say, thank you, God, I'm not like those people. Thank you that I'm not like those people. It's good to pay attention to the news, but too much of it can be toxic for your souls. It distracts and consumes you, and you end up spending little time reflecting on what's wrong with your own heart and remembering just how desperately you need Jesus. Not just those people, but you. Every day. Or what fills up your schedule and, and pushes out time to stop and pray and to just be with Jesus more. We are a very busy people. It's fine to have a hobby, but sometimes there's a fine line between hobby and obsession. What busyness keeps you from being with God's people more regularly? This is what leads to dead religion. It's when sweet time with Jesus and with his people gets squeezed out of your life and you end up just going through the motions. You muster up the strength to drag you and your family here to church on a Sunday and you go through the motions, keeping up appearances. But when you go home, you're completely different the rest of the Six days of the week. Much has been made over the last decade of a trend where more and more young people who grow up in the church walk away from it in their college and young adult years. And one reason for this is that they likely saw too much dead religion. And sadly, their exposure to dead religion has inoculated them against true religion. They've grown up with that and they don't want that, so they're going to go after something else. Church, our young people are watching us. What are they seeing? Moms and dads, your kids are watching you. What are they seeing? I'm not saying that we need to be perfect people because no, one, no one's perfect. But when your kids observe that mom and dad are not perfect, when you blow it, do they see you running to Jesus? Do they see that mom and dad need Jesus just as much as you say that they need Jesus? Do they see that you love Jesus for who he is and for what he's done for you? Do they see that? So dead religion, dead fake religion, this is the problem. Let's talk about the solution. This is the solution. Jesus turns down the volume. 
He unplugs the stereo. He drives out the circus. Jesus makes a whip out of cords. And really, this word for cords means rushes or reeds. And so, don't get this picture in your head of Jesus kind of whipping people and, you know, women and children screaming and all that sort of stuff. This is a whip that would not have hurt anybody. Uh, It was to drive the cattle out. Uh, This wasn't a deadly weapon here. Jesus was not hurting anyone. He was driving out the animals. But make no mistake, he was good and worked up. Growing up in the Boy Scouts, I learned early on how to make a fire. There's three things you need for fire. You need the fuel, the log, or the wood. That's the fuel. You need a spark to ignite it. And you need oxygen. Those three things are necessary to make fire. And I learned really early on, especially when you're making the fire, not to put too much wood on there, not to put too much fuel on there, because what it does is it, is it doesn't let the, the spark get access to the oxygen. It suffocates it, and the fire goes out. This is what Jesus is doing here. He's driving out the distractions that have suffocated genuine worship. He's waking them up. It's like a cup of cold water to the face to people to shake them free from this dead religious stupor. And as the dust is settling, you've got to believe that all the attention, all the focus is on Jesus now. And Jesus wants them to think about what they're doing. To think about the animals they're sacrificing So that when the time comes for him to be lifted up on the cross, they will understand what all of these animals really pointed to. That Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Maybe you're here today and and you sense this, that you've just been going through the motions. You can't remember the last time you read your Bible or prayed with any intentionality. You're here today because you just, it's what you do. It's what you do on Sundays. But inside, your soul is like a raisin. It's dried up. It's shriveled from lack of spiritual nourishment. If this describes you, there's a good chance your life is too noisy. It's too busy. And you need to consider what you need to do to drive out some of those things from your life. And note that those may not necessarily be bad things, things that we would call evil or sinful. We can get really busy doing good things, church, but we can't do it all. And it's it's dangerous for your soul to do too much. Maybe you turn off the radio when you're alone in the car and just pray. Maybe you stop doing some things, even good things, that are causing you to be too busy to spend any quality time in God's Word. Now, this doesn't describe our church at the moment, but you know, because we're pretty program light at the moment. But as we grow, we need to be careful that we don't become too busy running programs and events, that church life becomes a circus and we miss Jesus in the process. This does happen, and we need to be careful. Jesus didn't die so that we could run more programs. He died so that we could 
so that he could have our hearts. Programs can be great tools to help others grow in their love for Jesus, but they make lousy gods. So may we build with wisdom around here. Now, if we're not careful and we become too busy, too noisy, too distracted, Jesus, because he loves you, may turn some tables over in your life to wake you up, to wake you up and to get your attention. And this is the link between the wedding and the wine and the temple and these tables This is the connection between these two seemingly different Jesuses. Sometimes he shows us what he's doing. And to do that, he'll add to our tables. He'll fill our cups. But at other times, Jesus will remind us of what he's doing by overturning our tables to get our attention and to shake us free from dead religion. Now, after Jesus does this, he's got everyone's attention. And in verse 17, his disciples respond first by remembering the words of King David in Psalm 69. They think to themselves, wow, what zeal, what zeal. But the religious leaders respond asking, wow, what right What right? What right do you have, Jesus? Who do you think you are, Jesus? To come in here acting like you own the place. This is a a question of authority. This is their question. What authority do you have to be doing these things? Now, Jesus' response is somewhat cryptic, which is why John, the author, inserts an explanation here to Jesus' words. Jesus says in verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The religious leaders wanted to see some credentials to know what authority he has to do these things. And Jesus essentially says, You say, I act like I own this place. I've got news for you. I am this place. I don't just own it. I am it. Jesus is saying that just like the wedding and the the temple sacrifices were shadows that pointed to him, so too the temple itself is a shadow that points to Jesus. The temple was the place where God would meet with man. But now Jesus is the new temple. He's the new place where God meets with man. But notice, notice that his reference to himself as the temple is inseparable from his death and resurrection. Meaning that the only way to commune with God in this new temple is through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the only way. Something interesting about the temple. If we rewind back to the garden, Adam and Eve are are kicked out of the garden and there is put there outside of the garden a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the entrance 
back into the garden, back into God's presence. Now, when the temple was built, there was a curtain that marked off the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And no one could go in there but once a year, the high priest, to make that offering. But on that curtain, there was artistically woven into it or decorated onto it, there's palm trees on there and cherubim, signifying that that's the way back into the garden. The, the beauty of the palm trees represented the garden, the cherubim were the guards to get in there. And that high priest, but once a year, could only go in there if he had the blood of an animal with him, the blood of another. Something had to go under that sword to get back into God's presence. Something would have to go under that sword to get us back to the garden. And when Jesus died on the cross, that, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that he went in once for all. That all those who put their trust in Jesus, his death and his resurrection, putting their, our trust in the one who, who went under the sword for us, we now have access to God. Jesus is the perfect temple. He's the perfect temple that gives us access to the presence of God. Jesus is the only way in. Oftentimes we talk about coming to Jesus and we talk about turning from sin and, and oftentimes sin, this word just conjures up images in our mind of bad things like lying or stealing or cheating or adultery. Well, those things aren't everyone's story. Sometimes people need to repent of different sins, like moralism or trusting in dead religious routine. This means that your church involvement won't save you Reading the Bible in a year won't save you. Perfect attendance at church won't save you. That's not how you come to God. The only way is through Jesus' death and resurrection. He died and rose again to let you in. If that's where all of your trust is, then you're in. You're in. The wine at the wedding pointed to this. And now the destroyed and rebuilt new temple of Jesus points to this too. I'll end with this. Because Jesus is the new temple, he has the authority to oversee its practices. And this means that when you invite Jesus into your life to live with you, he has the right he has the authority to rearrange the furniture in your life. And it may involve overturning some tables now and again to get your attention. And this won't always be pleasant, but what a grace it is to spare us from the trap of dead religion. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you 
We thank you that following you is not about following a list of rules. It's not about going through the motions. It's not about ritual. It's not about any of that. Lord Jesus, you died to have our hearts. Forgive us. Forgive us for when we get too busy. We suffocate. We suffocate our souls from the nourishment that we need in you, Jesus. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we go through seasons of just dry times, not being in in the Word enough or, or praying, seeking you because that is where our greatest Uh, delight comes from. Forgive us for for getting too busy. Forgive us for putting off the the image that following Jesus is about following certain rules or even a certain political party. Forgive us. And God, we pray that as, as we take some of the stuff off of our lives that's suffocating our souls, Holy Spirit, fan into flame a passion for you, God. Fan our our souls into a flame of passion for you. May we become more bold in our witness because our hearts expand with greater love for you and for your kingdom and for your people. God, may, may may the world look at us and think, wow, what zeal. Not, wow, what goody-goodies. Help, us, help them to see our love for you, Jesus. Help them to know that you are worth it. You are, you are the greatest treasure that anyone could have. It's worth giving up all, all else, all others, all other things to have it. We thank you that when we have it, when we have you, we have it all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.